0: This message was recorded April seventeenth, two 2022. The speaker is David Simpson. Now let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Psalms. It'll be Psalm 22. And begin with verse number 1, please. And I want to read through verse number 5. Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O oh thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. Now the New Testament establishes that these are the words of our Lord, Matthew said in chapter 27 and verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is to say, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" Mark also repeated this in Mark 15:34. And about the ninth hour, or at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now this isn't Jesus quoting David. This is David recording the words of Jesus. This is God the Holy Spirit speaking with very precise language given to David so that David would know would say what Christ said upon the cross. At 6 a.m., which is called the first hour at the sunrise, that is beginning of the day, Jesus was taken to trial. It was illegal to try someone at that time, but that's what they did. At 9 o'clock in the morning, which would be the third hour, according to Mark 15 in verse 25, Jesus was crucified. And at noon, which would be the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the earth, And at three o'clock in the afternoon, which would be the ninth hour, Jesus surrendered his spirit in death. I want you to consider two truths from these verses that are here. First of all, the complaint of Jesus. And second of all, we will see the confession of Jesus. When When I use the word complaint, I don't use it in the sense of a grievance, but a grief. It's not a moping that he had upon the cross, but it was a moaning. And the complaint began in the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we were to go back and look, we would discover in John 15 that Jesus and his disciples, the 11, parted out of the upper room and they passed by the temple and looking at the temple door being opened, they could see a vine symbol, which was the symbol of Israel. And Jesus said to his disciples, I am the vine, the true one. And if you are in connected with me, then you have life. If you're disconnected from me, you do not have life. He's making a contrast saying that life comes not from Israel, not from the nation. But he said, life comes in connection with me. And then Jesus and his little band of 11 men passed out of the city on the east side. They went across the brook Kidron, up the hillside, and up that hillside they came to the Mount of Olives, it is called. But most particularly they came to the place that is called Gethsemane, according to Matthew. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. It's the place where the olives were collected. And they would be put in vats and they would walk upon them and they would force the olive oil out of the olives. It is a type of the pressure that our Lord Jesus is under. And if you study from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four passages that concern our Lord in the garden, I think you will discover that it's broken down into probably six things that Jesus said. Let me give these to you. In Matthew 26 and verse 38, Jesus said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. Well, the word sorrowful has an intensive added to it and it refers to the intensity of his grief. He said, My soul is exceedingly grievous. And that Christ was truly man and truly God is seen in this verse. That he truly had a soul is evident. The words come to light from Hebrews 4 where it says that his soul was touched with the feeling of our infirmities yet without sin. So we cannot help but see the great grief that our Lord endured. The second thing comes in Matthew 26 and 38 where it says that he was sorrowful unto death. It means that he felt the immensity of death and the imminence of of death. He was overwhelmed with the sorrow and it, uh, persuaded by it until he parted from soul and body. And so, this sorrowful unto death, this is not play acting. This is an immense sorrow in our Lord. The third thing that we find is in Mark 14 and verse 13 when it says he became sore amazed. It's an amazing thing that he was sore amazed. In the Greek language, this is a passive, which means that he was acted upon. And what it really tells us is that he was thrown into terror. He was astonished with the experiences of the grief. He knew it as God ahead of time. He saw it with his eyes. He planned that it would be there. Yet when it came to him as a man, he was sore amazed. This multiplied number, the kind and the depth of sins, coming to Him was terror. The dark storm had been in the distance, but the blackness of our sin was now upon Him. The fourth thing is in Mark 14 and 33, where it says He began to be very heavy. Now it's moved from being a passive verb to an active verb, and he is active in this. He began to be very heavy. So the result of what he saw with this sin that was coming, the justice of God that was coming, it was an unspeakable heaviness. Inside of him and beside of him, he was with immediate pain. God's justice and man's sin was an unspeakable weight It was upon his neck and upon his shoulders. And just like you and me when we have a weight, I think that he's drooped and his shoulders dropped and his back ached. He was in intensity of pain and his heart throbbed quickly within his chest. The fifth thing I would say to you is from Luke 22 and verse 44 where it says that he was in agony. And when it says that he was in agony, that is the word that he used for a contest. If you've ever been in a wrestling match, a wrestling match is of great intensity. You have someone of equal weight, of equal strength, of equal experience. Someone who has trained just like you and the intensity is almost beyond words. Well, that's the word that is used here. And is translated in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1 by the word conflict. It is severe emotional strain. He had said that the prince of this world comes. Well, I say to you, he now is here. Satan's attack was more strenuous than he ever even imagined. It is the serpent and the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 in desperate conflict where it will be the bruising of His heel and the crushing of the head of the serpent. But make no mistake about it, this is a true contest. Jesus would bruise His head and bruise His heel, but the bruising of His heel was exceedingly painful. And the sixth thing I think that we see is what Luke reported when it said, "...He sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground." Now we know that it was cold because John 18 and verse 18 tells us it was cold. And yet Jesus had blood pressure that had been raised to such a level, and just a flowing of His adrenaline, that He sweat great drops doesn't say that they were blood but it says if they were blood so great drops of blood flowed out of him and flowed down to the ground it portrays the intensity and the agony but it does not portray defeat it tells us that our lord was greatly in pain and so now in the light of that i want you to consider the words of our lord Here before us in Psalm 22. The first thing I want you to see is that it refers to his roaring. Jesus refers to the words of my roaring. So consider that you have the first complaint. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, for what cause am I left in this state? And the second complaint is you are far from helping me. The word far is an adjective, and it always, when used, refers to something that is remote, something that is distant. And the Greek translation of this word help here is not the word help, but is the word "soteria," which is the word for salvation. What Jesus asked here, why art thou so far from saving me? Jesus is in such great pain. He says that my salvation is far away. It now looked to him as if his resurrection was far into the future. This weight was upon him. You are so far from helping you me. You're so far from saving me. And then he says the words of my Roaring. Well, this word roaring that is used here is a word that refers, can refer to the roaring of a lion. For example, Job said the roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion. So the word roar can be used that way. But it also can be used the mourning of a person. In Job 3 and 24, it says, "For my sighing comes before I eat." And my roaring poured out like the waters. Well, we know the great pain that Job went through. He lost his family and lost his home and lost his wealth and lost his health. And there he is. He refers to this as roaring. And so this is the mourn of a person. But it is also used with regard to the well of shepherds. In Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 13, it says, There is the voice. Of the howling. That word is this same one. The howling of the shepherds. It also can be used with the howl of a sinner. David used this when he referred to his sin in Psalm 32 and verse 3. He said, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. So the roaring was inside of him. It was like a voice inside of him that he could hardly keep from just speaking out. Well, Jesus used this word roaring to describe the soul anguish that he was in. Why art thou far from helping me? Why art thou far from giving me salvation? So far from saving me. So far from raising me out of this death. And from the words of my roaring, my words are having no effect. They are like empty words that are coming to me. But Jesus is describing the soul anguish that is inside of him. The satisfaction of justice. The sin bearing and the substitute for God's elect. He says at this moment is more than I can bear. He said it is like roaring inside of me. And then you see this word cry in verse number 2. Oh my God, I cry. And the word cry usually is used for the word call. It is used over 700 times in the Old Testament. So a lot of times. And it means to call, to invoke, to summons. And here it is translated by the word cry. I call, I summons. I invoke, I cry, but I am not heard, is what we're being told. And the word is, in the Greek language, it means to call up, which is to intensify or to cry a loud declaration. And it is to cry out. And the Lord is petitioning and pleading. This is not fictitious. This is not folly. This is genuinely Pleading from the Son to the Father. Oh my God. Notice again, he doesn't use the word Father, but he uses the word God. God is judge and he's crying to him as judge. I cry out, he says, in the daytime and in the night season. Well, what is this talking about? Well, this is talking about the first three hours in the daytime. And the last three hours in the nighttime. In other words, all through those six hours of hanging upon the cross, He is crying out to the Father. This darkness that has now come in these three hours upon the earth. This is, first of all, a supernatural darkness. This is at the time of the Passover. At the time of the Passover, the moon was on one side of the earth and the sun was on the other side of the earth, so, this is not the moon passing between the sun and the earth causing an eclipse. This is not the result of some asteroid that is coming out of the heavens and passing between the heaven and the earth. This is a supernatural darkness. It lasted for three hours. This isn't just the simple passing of some heavenly body between the heaven and the earth. Rather, this is God's turning off the light and the warmth of the sun upon the earth. This is a worldwide darkness. Matthew records the darkness was over all the land. Mark records the darkness was over the whole land. But Luke says the darkness covers the whole earth, covers all of the earth. This is a solitary darkness. Jesus was closed out from God's help. Jesus is closed out from God's presence. Jesus is closed out from God's grace. Jesus is closed up to God's justice. When tried, Jesus was silent to his killers. And now God is silent to him. Before the Jewish rulers, Pilate, The Jewish governor, Herod, the Roman governor, Jesus said nothing. But now on the cross, Jesus cried, Jesus roared, Jesus moaned, Jesus grieved. But heaven is silent. I cry in the daytime, the first three hours. I cry in the nighttime, which is where he is right now. And he says, I am not heard. This is the complaint. This is the grief of the Savior. Now, let me talk with you for a minute about the confession of the Savior. The first thing he confesses we're able to see is the holiness of God. So, in all of this pain, in all of this agony, it would be like what is said of Job in all of this he sinned not. So, you see the biggest little word in human language in verse number three but, but, in spite of all of this, this is on the cross, this is in the nighttime, after the daytime. But thou art holy. The most essential attribute of God is that God is holy. We don't even have ways to describe what this is. No one can give an adequate description of what this is. I say something like God is holy other than man. That gives us some idea. If I say God is holy, that means that he is unapproachable. If I say God is holy, it means that He is exclusive in sinlessness. If I say God is holy, it means that He is solitarily righteous. What we do know is that when the angels addressed God, according to Isaiah 6, the word they used three times, holy, holy, holy. Three times because God is not one, but three. God is one in his threeness. God is three in his oneness. There is Father, and God is Son, and God is Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. I like the way the Amplified Version translates this. It says, But you are holy, you who dwell in the holy place where the praises of Israel are offered. Thou inhabitest the praises of Israel. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was covered by a mercy seat. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant were three articles that represented the sinfulness of man. And above that mercy seat, that plate of gold, were the angelic beings looking down, always upon the sinfulness of man. The gold couldn't cover it. But one time a year, blood was sprinkled upon that gold plate... And God was now not looking upon the sinfulness of man, but he's looking upon the blood. And it's above that mercy seat where Israel met God. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. And I think that's what the translator was trying to convey. It's there. It's there where God receives the praise and adoration. It is where the blood is shed. It's here Jesus is shedding his blood. Thou art holy, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Psalm 22.3, the Amplified says, You who dwell in the holy place where the praises of Israel are offered. This holy place, just above the mercy seat. There where the blood was sprinkled, where the propitiation was made. What does it tell us? In the New Testament, God set forth Christ to be propitiation. He is that blood sacrifice. He is that blood where God looks upon the blood and not upon the sin. That's what's happening right here. Thou inhabitest the praises because you are looking upon the blood. God's presence now looking upon that blood. You are holy. Thou art a holy God. So in all of this pain, in all of this agony, in all of this difficulty, in all of this grief and this complaint, he sinned not. Thou art holy, thou inhabitest the praises of Israel. And that's where we meet him. We meet him right there where the blood was shed. We meet him right there where righteousness was earned, accepted, and reckoned to the account of his people. It wasn't before, it couldn't have been. It wasn't after. There's no need for it to be. It's all right there. And that's where we meet Him. And that's what Jesus is telling us. But there's not only the confession of His holiness. There is the confession of His sovereignty. Jesus said, Our fathers trusted in Thee. They trusted. And then this statement, Thou didst deliver them. They cried unto Thee, and they were delivered. They trusted Thee, and they were not Confounded. Now if you take off the last three statements of each of the verses, look at the strength that he puts to the sovereignty of God. Thou didst deliver them, they were delivered, they were not confounded. They trusted in thee and they were not confounded. The word confounded is a word that is probably best understood to mean Disappointed. Most of all, you see, we understand God's sovereignty by this matter of being delivered. And being delivered is the same in the New Testament as being saved. They were saved. They were delivered. That is redemption. That is reconciliation. That is enmity removed. That is condemnation taken away and righteousness reckoned. That is the remission of sin. That is forgiveness. All of it is right there. They were delivered. And this matter of believing in Him is so important because they were not confounded. They were not ashamed. The word confounded means to feel ashamed or to be disappointed. And the wonderful freeing 10th chapter of Romans refers to this truth. Whosoever believes on Him shall not be disappointed. We make much of the blood of Christ. It may seem to some that we make little of the believing. I don't mean it to be that way. I urge you to believe Him. I urge you to come to Him. God, nor His freeing gospel, any way or ever disappoints. His obedience, His suffering, His blood, His righteousness were accounted to His people and it freed them. And this tells then of His sovereignty. And Jesus, by God-given faith, tells us to look to Him because there is no disappointment in that. Here on the cross, think about it now. In all of this pain, in all of this grief, Jesus confesses God's holiness and confesses His sovereignty to save His people. And He knows that not one of them for whom He died will be disappointed. Now, isn't that true? I am in no way disappointed in what Jesus did upon that cross. Nor are you.